Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Melek Frata Altai. I'm a musician and a neuroscientist. My research focuses on deciphering the path mechanisms of neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. Today, I will be your host, and we will be talking to Dr. Jonathan Losis about his new book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, published by the Penguin Publishing Group this year. The domestic cat has, from its evolutionary origins in Africa, been transformed in comparatively little time into one of the most successful and diverse species on the planet. Jonathan Losis, writing as both a scientist and a cat lover, explores how researchers today are unraveling the secrets of the cat, past and present, using all the tools of modern technology, from GPS tracking and genomics to forensic archaeology. In a genial voice, casually deciphering complex science and history with many examples from his own research and multi-cat households, Losis explores how selection, both natural and artificial, over the last several millennia has shaped the contemporary cat with new breeds vastly different in anatomy and behavior from their ancestral stock. And I would like to dedicate this episode to my dear cats, Binaz, Tina, and Yuri. Jonathan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. I'm very glad to be talking to you today. Um, As am I. (laughs) Perfect. So before we start uh, talking about your book, The Cat's Meow, could you... Maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background. Sure. So I am a scientist, a a biologist. I'm a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and I've spent my career studying how species evolve and adapt to their environment. And that research has focused almost exclusively on lizards. It turns out that lizards are a great organism to study evolution. Um, Yet at the same time, I have always loved cats. Ever since I was five years old and my mother and I went to an animal shelter and adopted a cat uh, for my father for his birthday. And ever since I've loved cats, uh, but it never occurred to me to do anything scientifically with cats for two reasons. Um, I wanted to go out into nature and study animals as they went about their daily lives. And anyone who has ever tried to follow a cat knows just how impossible that is. That is, as soon as the cat figures out what you're doing, which is right away, they give you the slip. They disappear into the bushes. And so cats didn't seem like a good organism to study. Um, In addition, I didn't think anyone was studying. I didn't think there was any interesting research going on about domestic cats. And so I've spent my my career studying lizards. Amazing. I actually don't know much about lizards, although I also studied biology. Um, well, that, and then I can say they're, they're just they're fascinating animals. They've been around since the age of dinosaurs, and there are more species of lizards than there are of mammals. So they're an extraordinarily successful group from an evolutionary perspective. And then how did you decide to write a book about the cats? How did so, you get to write to the cat's meow and why now? Yes. Well, so uh, as I said, I've always loved cats, but I didn't think anyone was doing interesting research on them. And then about 10 years ago, I discovered that I was wrong, that actually there is a lot of interesting research on cats. And by cats, I mean the domestic cat, not lions and tigers and so on. Uh, I, I learned that there was a lot of research and that cat scientists were using all the latest techniques from GPS tracking, 
to genome sequencing, to isotopic analysis, to understand the biology of the cat. Using all the methods that I use to study lizards and my colleagues use to study elephants and eagles and so on. And then, so, so it turns out there is a lot of interesting science going on. And then I had what I humbly submit was a great idea. I would teach a class for first year university students called the science of cats. And the idea was that I would lure the students to take the class because they like cats and then teach them how we study biology, how we study nature, just using research on cats as the vehicle to teach them that. So I taught this class and it was really uh, a great success. The students enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We all learned a lot. So why don't I write a book with the same goal to tell people about where cats came from, why they do what they do, and what the future may hold, and how we know those things. And so that's how the Cats Meow began. And I can tell you, I would definitely also sign up to that class. Well, I, we have a spot. I'll save a spot for you. I'm teaching it again in January. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so Jonathan, tell me, can we confidently say that cats are fully domesticated, or is this still um, open for debate? Well, that's a great question. And um, part of the reason that it's debated is uh, people often say that cats are semi-domesticated, but that's not a scientific term. And so what that actually means is debatable. Um, but what is clear is that cats are much less different from their ancestor than most domesticated species. If you think about a dog, for example, and compare a dog to a wolf, well, they're different in many ways. And this is true of most domesticated species, but it's not true of cats. Cats are very similar to their ancestor, the African wildcat. They've only changed a very little bit and changed a very little bit in their anatomy, in their behavior, and in their genomes. And so in that sense, they are only partially domesticated. As many people say, they still have one paw in the wild. And then there is the other question about the cat's meow. Um, I know that uh, there is this certain theory that cats only meow at humans, uh, but is this actually true or is this a myth? Well, that's, that's a great question. Of course, it's the title of my book for a reason. Well, there are actually two reasons that the, the book is called The Cat's Meow. One is that meowing is an excellent example of the biology of cats and how it has changed during domestication. Uh, but the other reason is that, at least in the United States, the phrase, the cat's meow, means something that is really good. It's the cat's meow. Or sometimes people say, similarly, the cat's pajamas. So that's where the title of the book came from. Um, but your question, do cats meow only to people? Well, when I first started researching this book, I assumed that cats meow to each other to communicate, and that when they meow to us, they were just including us in their social network. But it turns out, as you said, that cats actually don't meow to each other very much. They do it a little bit, but not very much. Um, and we know that from research conducted in England about 30 years ago, where a researcher went out and studied colonies of unknown cats outdoors. And she just sat and observed those cats, just like Jane Goodall does with chimpanzees and other researchers do studying behavior in the wild. And what she found is that the cats don't meow to each other very much. They use other sounds. They certainly howl and, and hiss and growl, but they don't meow to each other. And so what that indicates that is that using 
meows to communicate with us is a trick that they picked up during domestication. So how, when, and why were the cats domesticated in the first place? Well, cats were domesticated, all the evidence suggests, in the area that we now call the Middle East, and more particularly the area that has been called the Fertile Crescent. That's an area that extends from Turkey around the Mediterranean to Israel and Egypt and those areas. And the reason it occurred there, well, there's two reasons actually. One reason is that that is where human civilization first began, where people settled down, stopped being hunter-gatherers, started living in villages and growing crops, uh, the dawn of agriculture. Now, when farmers grow crops, they grow as much as they can and they store the excess in granaries or in other places to save for leaner times. And you know what happens when you have a big pile of food lying around, it attracts uh, pests that try to eat it, specifically in this case, rats and mice. So uh, we created this area where there were a lot of rodents. Now this is, this is an area where the North African wildcat occurs naturally. And so it's easy to envision what happened, that there were some of these wildcats. And I do need to point out, wildcat is the technical name of this species. It's not just a wildcat, it's a particular species. So some of these wildcats had, uh, were more, you know, cats, like all animals, have different personalities. And some are, we could call them bold, fearless, and others are scaredy cats. And so the ones that were bold were willing to go into villages to be around people in order to eat the rodents. And so they got more to eat, and so they had more kittens. And if these behavioral differences were due to genetic differences, then the mutation for being bold became more common, which is, that's how natural selection works. And so the cats uh, domesticated themselves by hanging around people. And in turn, people seeing, uh, seeing that cats were useful probably rewarded the cats, put out food, let them into their huts where it was warm and, and dry. And again, the cats that were the boldest, the ones most willing to take advantage, survived better, had more kittens. And so in this back and forth between cats and humans, that's how domestication occurred. Now, there's one more element to this story. I like to say that, uh, that domestication occurred in, in this area with the North African wildlife because, uh, I'm sorry, the North African wild cat, because it was the right species in the right place and the right time. And the reason I say it was the right species is that there is another type of wild cat called the European wild cat. And these two species look pretty similar, but they're very different behaviorally. That African wild cats, if you raise them from kittens, uh, they will grow up to be very tame individuals, that they will be very friendly. And these are wild cats, not domesticated cats. Uh, and so they were predisposed to do well around people. European wildcats, on the other hand, if you raise a European wildcat very nicely, treat it very well as a kitten, it will still grow up to be very mean and unpleasant. And so the European wildcat just doesn't have the behavioral personality that would make it conducive to domestication. And so that's why the North African wildcat was the right species, the right personality in the right place, the Middle East, and the right time when the civilization first happened. And I need one moment to let my cat in the door. One second. Come in, Winston. Sure. <laughs> okay, Winston is in. 
So we talked about uh, cats meow and how cats meow at humans more than they do at each other. Uh, how did the interactions with humans influence the evolution of cats or uh, the, the behavior of cats? Do we have other examples of how uh, cats may have evolved to be more social with uh, humans? Uh, yes, we do. As, as I mentioned, domestic cats are not very different from their ancestor, the African wildcat, but there are a few differences. For one thing, their meow is shorter and higher pitched, sort of a meow as opposed to uh, opposed to the wildcat's meow. So they've changed their meow somewhat. And when you play the meows of domestic cats and African wildcats to people, not telling them which one is which, they clearly prefer the sound of the of the domestic cat. And so it seems the domestic cat has altered its meow in a way that uh, we find more pleasing. There's also an interesting story having to do with the way they purr. And the uh, the domestic cat has two different purrs. I should point out that all species of small cats, they all meow and they all purr. So the fact that domestic cats do this is not a new trait they've evolved during domestication, that all species of small cats do that. Um, but domestic cats purr in two ways, or make two different sounds. One of them is the very pleasant sound that they make when the cat is sitting in your lap and you're you're petting the cat nicely and they're very happy. A very contented thrum, kind of a brr, 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 the one that's so heartwarming to hear. But they make a second sound that is more insistent, more grabs your attention. It's called the solicitation purr. And to, pi to picture that sound, think about when you're in the kitchen opening a can of wet food and the cat is rubbing against your legs and purring very loudly. And it's a much more chainsaw-like purr, kind of brr, brr, brr. It really grabs your attention and it's not as pleasant sounding. And again, if you, if you play the purrs to people and they listen to them, they, found, they find it more insistent and less pleasant. Uh, well, researchers have studied these purrs and, um, and they recorded them and they, they analyzed the calls, the, the purrs on a computer, and they were able to isolate the one element of the purr that differs in these two types of purrs. And so uh, it was a very neat study. I, I was very impressed by it. But then the researchers said, well, the one difference has to do with a very low, low frequency sound that is part of the solicitation purr. And in fact, if you digitally remove that part of the purr, it sounds much more pleasant, according to people who listen to it. So it's that that one element is what makes it have its loud, insistent aspect. Well, it turns out the researcher said that is the same sound that that one element is the same sound that human babies make when they're crying. And as you probably know, humans are innately attuned to the sound of a baby crying. It really catches our attention. I mean, for obvious reasons, evolutionarily, we've evolved to to be sensitive to that sound. And the researchers argued that cats have basically taken advantage of our sensory systems, that they've taken advantage of our being attuned to that one sound, and they have evolved a purr that will catch our attention when they really want something. Well, I thought that was going a little far. I thought that was kind of ridiculous, to be honest. But then I listened to some audio files of the solicitation purr, 
And sure enough, if you listen to it, you can hear a human baby crying embedded within the purr. And so maybe they're right. Uh, when I when I play those purrs to people, about half the people I play it to say, yeah, I can hear a baby there. So maybe that is the case. Maybe the cats have actually evolved a purr that grabs our attention, that taken advantage of us, of our sensitivities to manipulate us. So that's another aspect of what how cats have evolved. We presume, we actually don't know much about the purring of, of other species. Um, if I could go on for just one more moment, there's one other signal that cats have evolved different from uh, their ancestors. And that is when they approach another cat or a person with friendly intentions, they raise their tail straight up into the air. It's kind of a flagpole-like sign. And it basically says, I wanna be friends, I come in peace. And that's something that domestic cats do, but African wild cats do not. So there aren't many behavioral differences between domestic cats and their ancestors, but there are a few. And how come do we have such a diversity of house cats today, if they have all evolved from the African wild cat? Well, there are, uh, so the domestic cats are remarkably diverse in color, in pattern, in hair texture, and in other, other traits. And there's there's three different reasons why this has occurred. Uh, for one thing, once we had cats living in our homes, natural selection no longer was so strong operating on them. Think about, for example, orange cats. You don't see orange cats in nature in, in almost any species of feline. In fact, bright orange cats, you don't see at all. Well, why is that? Uh, probably because orange is very easy to see. And so a cat that requires camouflage to go hunting and to avoid being detected by predators, orange would be a terrible color. And if a mutation for orange color came along, those individuals wouldn't survive. And so the mutation would disappear. But once cats were living with us, predation was no longer much of a concern and hunting wasn't that important either. And so you could imagine that if a mutation occurred, it might've just persisted uh, just due to luck. That it's a phenomenon biologists called genetic drift, that natural selection wasn't affecting it. And so just by chance, it became more common. Now, on top of that, people may have liked orange cats. They might've said, wow, that's a cool looking cat I've never seen before. And so they might actually have been particularly nice to that cat, fed it more, um, raised its babies and so on. Uh, so that's one reason. The second reason that there's such a variety of cats is that even though the domestic cat originated in the, uh, in the Middle East, it then spread around the world, as we know today. And many of these cats, they traveled with us, but they, they lived out in the wild and they, uh, they evolved, particularly species in Northern areas where it's cold, evolved very thick coats and very stocky bodies to cope with with cold temperatures. And so that's led to some of the cats that are very shaggy and very densely furred. Finally, humans have intentionally bred different types of cats, different breeds. Um, just like there are many different breeds of dogs, there are many breeds of cats. And most of those breeds have been developed and sculpted by humans selecting particular individuals to, uh, to reproduce, selecting those individuals based on their traits, usually their appearance. And so that leads to the great diversity of cat breeds that exist today, which numbers, depending who you ask, anywhere from 45 to 75 or so breeds. 
So those are the reasons that we have such a diversity of cats today. It is interesting when you look at paintings on tomb walls from Egypt 3,500 years ago, there's very little diversity. All the cats look the same. And so initially, cats looked very much like their ancestor, the African wildcat. And so the diversity we see today has all arisen in the last 3,000 years or so. And then we also have feral cats. Um, how do the, the, the social organization and the hunting practices of the feral cats, um, how, how is it similar to the other types of cats? Well, that that is a great question. And there's a fascinating, that's a fascinating story. Uh, we often think of cats as being aloof loners, that they don't socialize with each other very much, that they live solitary lives. But it turns out that that is not always correct. And the reason is that there are many cats that live outdoors and they're unowned and that they just live in, that they live on their own. However, in some places, there is a lot of food around. And that's often because people feed them in, in towns and cities and they put out a lot of food for the stray cats and that leads to the buildup of large populations. Or in places like fishing villages where, they're, where the fisher people uh, throw their waste into just piles of, of fish guts and so on, again, that will be a lot of food for cats to eat. And so in these places, you can get very large colonies of, of cats. And those colonies turn out to be composed of groups that are very friendly to each other, very social. And those groups are composed of related females. So the individuals will be a mother and her daughters and her granddaughters, cousins, aunts, and so on. So they're all related. And they are far from being aloof loners. They are very friendly to each other. They lie next to each other. They groom each other. They play with each other. They will even nurse each other's kittens and even assist in, in, in birth, serving as midwives. And so they're, they can be very social uh, to each other in their group. Now, in an area, there will be different groups that live in the same place. And individuals are not friendly to members of other groups. In fact, they're quite aggressive. But to their own group member, uh, they are very friendly. Now, there is a, an interesting pair. So this, the African wildcat does not have this behavior. They are truly independent, aloof cats, unsocial, if you will. And that is true of every other species of feline except one. And that other species is the African lion and probably the, and the Asian lion. So it is the lion. And lions are famous for living in prides. And these prides, just like the domestic cat, are composed of related females. That when the males grow up, they leave to go somewhere else. But the females often stay and live with their, their group they grow up in. And so the females are, are all related to each other. And they too, as you know, are very social. They lie next to each other, they play, they groom, they nurse each other's kittens. And so domestic cats and lions share a similar social structure. And for that reason, really groups of cats should be referred to as a pride. They're just like a pride of lions. Uh, and why is it that lions and domestic cats show the same behavior? It's because of food. I already explained why the domestic cat lives in colonies because there's so much food. The same is true of lions. They live on the African plains where there's lots of food around. They're the top predator. And so the abundance of food selects for them living in social groups. Interestingly, one last point, I talked about how a friendly greeting of the domestic cat is sticking their tail up in the air. 
Um, no other feline does that. The African wildcat doesn't, again, with one exception. The, African, the lion also uses its tail as a social signal. And as they approach each other, they also stick their tails up in the air as a way of saying, I, I want to be friendly. I come in peace. So the African lion, sorry, I keep on saying the African lion, the lion and the domestic cat are the two social species of cats. They've evolved very similar social structures and behaviors. This is a phenomenon called convergent evolution, where species evolve to be similar, even though they're not closely related. Wow, this is really remarkable. And I thought I knew quite a lot about cats because I grew up with them. But uh, after having read your book, I still discover new, new things about them. <laughs> Um, uh, there's lots lots of fascinating research. It's really amazing what scientists have discovered about them. Yeah, absolutely. And then there is this other topic um, to do with um, the, the, the population of domestic cats growing and how that might impact the wildlife. What's your take on, on this subject? Um, is it good to let the cats roam uh, freely, or is it uh, should this be restricted somehow? Well, that is a controversial and highly debated topic, and there there's several different elements to that. First, cats are consummate predators. The domestic cat, very similar to its ancestors, it's barely changed, and they are very good predators. Even even kittens that aren't raised by their mother can often grow up to be very good predators. They they are they're very effective at that. So when cats go outside, when pet even pet cats that go outside, many of them are very good at catching and killing, uh, killing birds, small mammals, and many other things. And that's just in their nature. That's what they do. And there's two. Um, so there's two important questions. What is the impact of these cats on populations of, of birds and, and other species? And is it good or bad for the cat to go outside for it? for the cat's own health. In terms of their impact on prey species, in some places, they can be very detrimental. And in fact, in places like Australia and on, ocean, on, on islands in the world's oceans, they can have a devastating impact on prey populations for two reasons. One is that the prey often have never experienced a predator like a cat. They have evolved no defenses against them. In fact, on many islands, there are no predators at all. And so the uh, the prey are, as we say in the US, they're sitting ducks. And so the cats easily, uh, easily kill lots of them. And moreover, in many of these places, there are no predators to limit the cat populations. So their populations get very large. So there's no question that cats have been responsible for the extinction of many species on islands and in Australia, and they're still a threat. Now, the situation in places like Europe and North America is a little more complicated. Again, many cats go outside and they, they do kill lots of prey. There are estimates that in the United States, cats may kill about 2 billion birds. That's billion with a B, 2 billion birds every year. And that may be a big conservation problem, but we don't actually know for sure. There, there are very few examples in say the United States of species that are endangered because of cats. And so there's reason to be concerned, but we need a lot more data. So it, this is a this is a uh, controversial topic because there are people who feed unowned outdoor cats. And this leads to a debate between 
the conservationists who are concerned about the wildlife populations and the people feeding the cats who are concerned about the welfare of the cats. And it's a sadly, it's a very nasty debate where instead of trying to find compromise and mutually acceptable solutions, the two sides just don't get along and nothing gets accomplished. Now, the other question is, what about for the health of the cat? Should you let cats outdoors? And on the one hand, many cats want to go out outdoors and they're very unhappy if they can't go outdoors. And in fact, uh, some people have argued that it's important for the psychological health of your cat to get to roam outside, to, to live cat life to its fullest, to smell things, to investigate, to be curious. And so um, they say it is important for cats for their psychological well-being. Uh, so I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, but the other side is it is dangerous to go outside for cats. They can get diseases. Um, cats often do stupid things. People have discovered that for sure by putting GPS trackers on them to see where they go. And they cross roads all the time, which is very dangerous. And they've also put little cameras around the neck of a cat on a collar and they're called kitty cams. And it shows they're doing dangerous stuff all the time, going onto roofs, into attics, going into, into uh, sewer, sewage or stormwater drains where they could be uh, swept away if a storm came along. So they do lots of dangerous stuff. And uh, also they're vulnerable to being captured and eaten by dogs, or at least in the United States, coyotes, which are now very common in the US. And so there's no doubt that there's a lot of danger if you let your cat outside. Um, and so that's the debate is psychologically, some cats, not all cats, benefit from being outside, but it's also dangerous. And so there are different opinions about uh, what should be done with them. Uh, there are solutions like building what is called a catio, which is an outdoor area for cats that is fenced or otherwise the cat can't get out so they can experience the outdoors without being exposed to the dangers. Um, if nothing else, if you keep cats indoors, you need to give the cat mental stimulation. They are very smart animals. They get bored very easily. You need to give them places that they can explore. They like to go up onto high things. So cat trees or other objects that they can climb high, play with them with toys a lot, and just keep them mentally stimulated because they are very smart, very creative animals. And boredom is certainly bad for them. And so one way to get rid of, to deal with boredom is to let them outside and explore. Um, but if you don't do that, which would be completely understandable, you need to make sure you, your cat has a lot going on inside to keep it stimulated. What was one discovery that surprised you the most during uh, your writing of the book? Well, there were a number of interesting discoveries. One is the fact that cats don't meow, don't meow to each other, uh, which we've talked about. Another discovery is that, uh, well, it has to do with two of my cats that I live with now, Winston and Jane. They were uh, litter mate. They are litter mates. And their mother was a stray cat who sadly was run over when they were two weeks old. And so they were rescued by someone who knew they had just been born. And, and then we adopted them a few months later. Um, so these cats came from the same litter. And yet they couldn't look more different. Winston is a really big cat. He was 17 pounds at his prime. He's now a little less because he's getting old. Really big cat. Uh, he's a bit timid. And he's he's black and white, a gray and white. Uh, it looks like a big cow, really. Uh, Jane, his sister, is 
half his weight. She's slate gray and is much more adventuresome. So they're very different cats. And I always wondered, how can they be brother and sister and be so different? Well, one of the things I discovered as I was reading the research on cats, it turns out that cats, out, outdoor cats, the females, when they're ready to mate, when they're in heat, as it said, uh, they will advertise their interest by yowling and by emitting scents called pheromones to attract males. And then lots of males will, will come to them and the males will take turns mating with the female. The female will mate with many different males. And surprisingly, male tomcats, which can be so aggressive to each other normally, will apparently just stand by and, and you know, passively wait to take their turn, if you will. But the point is that the female cat will mate with many males, and that means that the offspring in her litter often have multiple fathers. That one study found in, in one place, something like three quarters of the litters had multiple paternity. And so I think that's the answer to Nelson, uh, sorry, to Winston and Jane. I think they have the same mother, but different fathers. And that's why they're so different. So those were two of the interesting things, but there are lots of other findings about cats that are just so interesting and surprising having to do with catnip. Uh, let me tell you one more example of, we have a cat now named, named Nelson. He is a Burmese cat and we got him as a kitten. They're extremely friendly cats. And after a few months in our house, he started picking up his toys, bringing them to me, dropping them at my feet, and then looking up at me as if to say, playtime. And so I would play with him with the toy. Sometimes I would throw the toy and he would run and get it and bring it back. In other words, he was fetching, a cat that fetches. I had never heard of such a thing. And, and just to be clear, I did not train him to fetch. This was entirely a behavior that he developed on his own. Well. I was astonished. I thought that Nelson was the most wonderful cat ever, which he actually is, but perhaps not for this reason. And so I had all these thoughts of, of going on TV to show Nelson the fetching cat, creating our own YouTube channel, uh, all kinds of great things that Nelson would, uh, would accomplish, bringing fame and fortune. But before doing that, I suddenly thought, well, maybe I ought to look into this a little bit more. And it turns out there is a little bit of scientific literature. People have studied this. In fact, there was a, a paper that came out just recently, and it documents that about 20% of pet cats do exactly like Nelson do. They develop the trick of bringing toys to the people they live with and fetching them entirely on their own. And so, um, so Nelson is a great cat, but it turns out many cats are great cats. Jonathan, this has been an amazing, uh, fascinating discussion. Um, what are you currently working on? What's your next project? Maybe a book on lizards? Well, I actually have written a book on lizards and I've actually written two books, one on lizards, one about evolution in general, but I spend a lot of time talking about my research on lizards. I might have another one in me down the line, but um, not just yet. Actually, the next project I want to work on is still about cats. Um, the issue of outdoor cats and their impact on the environment is a very large topic with many different aspects to it, and also a very controversial one. Initially, I was going to include it in this book, and then I realized it's just too big a topic, that the, the book would have been enormous. Um, and it was a little bit of a distraction from understanding the evolution of the cat, where it came from, and so on, and where it's going. Um, so I think I'd like to write, so, so I didn't include it in the book. I had one brief chapter. 
So I think I would like to write a book on that about you know, what the issues are with cats and what can what can be done about those to come up with um, what I call win-win solutions that will be good for 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 native biodiversity, but also good for cats themselves. So that's uh, that's hopefully my next book. Also, unexpectedly to me, I'm beginning to do research on cats myself. That was never my plan, but the more I learned about cat science, the more fascinated I became, and the more I saw opportunities where I could borrow uh, ideas from my studies of lizards and evolution to ask questions about cats. And so that research is just getting underway, and I'm hoping, you know, in a year or two, I'll start publishing papers to add to the scientific literature on cats. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to them. And many thanks for joining me today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Farad. This has been this has been great fun.